Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. Scott Rayburn of the International New York Times is back on the podcast. In these 50 minutes, we're going to discuss TFAF, online art sales, and Sotheby's new direction. Scott, you've just come back from TFAF, uh, the big fair in Maastricht. Would you give us a sense of uh, what it was like? Well, TFAF, it, as, as people know, as we know, is the biggest and the most prestigious of all affairs devoted to um, pre-21st century material. Um, it's, it's been going a, a long time. Um, and uh, its traditional strength is old masters, but also classical antiquities and so forth. Uh, the problem it has at the moment is that the, the fair calendar is increasingly crowded, and this year there was a, a pretty straightforward clash with um, Art Basel Hong Kong, and also, equally significant in a way, um, Asia Week in New York, and uh, I spoke to a number of people who said that they felt there were there are fewer Americans around um, this time. Um, and clearly, from the point of view of, of contemporary art collectors, uh, most of the focus was was I think for them in in Hong Kong. But contemporary art really isn't the the, the strength of of, of TFAF. So in a way, uh, that wasn't so important. What was I think rather more significant was the old master section, which has been the traditional strength of the fair. The fair actually grew out of um, a, a, a pictures fair based in, based in, um, in Maastricht. Um, and I spoke to a number of people and I went around the booth myself. And what I was picking up is that the, the old master dealers are really struggling to get fresh material, the quality of fresh material that will get museum curators and private collectors on planes to come to really quite an inaccessible um, place. Uh, I think the problem that old master dealers have at the moment is that uh, particularly the, strengths, the strength of Sotheby's is a particular problem. If you're a wealthy person, you've got a really good old master picture, uh, you tend to sell it at Sotheby's. And Sotheby's and Christie's have very, very good strong, deep, private client lists. And these paintings are going to private collectors and they're being marketed with increasing efficiency and aggression internationally. And the trade really don't get a look in. And what would appear to be the case, they're not really being offered things in uh, either privately. So what happens at TFAF, the great showcase of, of um, dealer, dealers in old master pictures, this year there was a noticeable lack of really outstanding, fresh pictures that hadn't been seen before. Yes, and that seems to be a uh, ongoing complaint uh, from some of the the you know, observers. People like Bendor Grosvenor have uh, pointed out again and again that the dealers are two steps behind the auction houses, and the auction houses have done a very good job of expanding the buying pool, and the dealers, in part because they're their smaller footprint can't quite keep up. And of course, TFAF is the one of the few places that they're um, trying to put on an equal footing because it gathers such a large group. And and yet we seem to hear uh, the, the attempt to bring together merging 
contemporary or modern collectors with the old master's world isn't really working. Uh, I gather there's been complaints about um, Freeze Masters not really working for the old master uh, dealers. And so, and so you seem to have a, a very, very clear case of the auction houses uh, being terribly successful and being unchallenged. And, and, and I think you're, you're probably being too fair to Christie's. They have been terribly weak in their competition with um, – Sotheby's for uh, a number of years, which they they all but admitted by hiring in New York one of Sotheby's experts to be the yeah, New York know, head absolutely. of the old master um, department. It's worth pointing out that Sotheby's, uh, their old master department is actually one of the outstanding departments um, in any auction house. They're, 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 they're a real class act. And I think it actually does show a TFAF now, um, the dealers struggling. Um, but I don't, I don't want to be too negative about TFAF because you go to that fair and uh, you wander around and you still see sensational, exciting things. Uh, I, I, you know, for me, the outstanding single object there was the, um, the rediscovered pre-Raphaelite painting by um, Collins uh, that Rupert Mars offered. Now, we haven't seen a freshly discovered pre-Raphaelite painting in my lifetime either by a dealer or in the auction houses. And it was a really sensational discovery. And it was a painting that was painted just three years after the formation of the Brotherhood. Collins, though not a fam- as famous as Millet or Holman Hunt, was a member of the, the, that, that key pre-Raphaelite group. And fascinatingly, it was painted in this, this uh, painted with the, 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 using oils in a wet white ground, which gives the paint these early paraphylite paintings of the fantastic jewel-like quality. Um, and this, this, this was a remarkable painting. So you know, and in a way, it was worth going to, to TFAF just to see that. It was priced at 2.5 million euros, which made an incompa- interesting comparison with current price points in temporary. Um, and and did it sell? I mean, I know that. Well, I was going to say, I, 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 what I heard was I spoke to Rupert Mars a couple of times. And I, I think he was in pretty serious discussions with a serious museum. And as we know, um, they don't impulse buy museums. And he obviously wanted it to go to a good home um, where people could see it in, in in the future. So I think it. I, my sense was that these were serious negotiations, but I, I, ha- I haven't spoken to him in the last few days. Uh, I need an update, really. But that, that, I think that was the outstanding individual object. And, you know, that really lifts a fair when you get something as exciting that something that hasn't been seen in the auction rooms, um, well, certainly in my lifetime. Yes, and we know that it's not just the museums that take their time at TFAF. It's a, a fair that's famous for having uh, uh, dealers make... Connections, but not necessarily sales, and that the sales yes. will happen, you know, in due course over time. Absolutely, um, and it's a very long fair. It spans two weekends, and people have, I gather, have significant sales on the second weekend. Um, but I think there was a general sense among the exhibitors and some of the people who visited that I think TFAF could do with a bit of shaking up, freshening up other than just changing the approach to flower arrangements in the, in the lobby. Um, you, you, um, you wrote this week about something uh, tangential to TFAF. The other thing TFAF is famous for now is its annual report 
on the state of the art market, or at least the the volume and size uh, produced by Claire McAndrew, the Irish uh, uh, art economist. Uh, and part of this year's report included a um, estimate of the online transactions that was was quite high. Uh, it was around three point three uh, billion euros, yeah. which is is very hard to see. <laughs> Where that number comes from? Well, it it, it worked out at six six uh, percent. Uh, the term is penetration, doesn't it? Into market six percent, which um, w- when you think of the column inches devoted to um, online sales in the art market, and you think about the huge amounts of money that's spent in the art market, it, it it seems quite a low number. But I think one fascinating aspect of it was that the the comparison industry used was luxury um which of course the relationship with luxury in the art market is, is a very interesting one and fascinatingly in 2013 online sales in the luxury sector only represented four percent of sales because of course the the luxury sector is pretty scared of online sales because of course luxury is sold primarily through very very expensive stores um well luxury is also based very strongly on experience and uh it's very hard to create an experience online and and uh you know when you when you buy that bentley you want to sit in it first uh you want to enjoy the experience uh, uh, of it and that certainly seems to uh, transfer over to art i mean that's uh, again what's so interesting is that tfaf is an art fair and the growth of art fairs are part of that growth of uh, participating in the art market for the experience, the travel, the communal um, aspect, the social of seeing different people at the fa- fairs. And, and yet none of the fairs have produced a significant uh, e-commerce platform, as it were. It's, 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 a, it's a difficult one to evaluate, isn't it? Because uh, if we think about the art market, just think about how the impact that digital technology has had on it is absolutely enormous. Um, if you think about just the routines of, of contemporary art collecting, um, there are people who put entire collections together on their phones through Instagram. Um, now, these don't technically uh, constitute online sales because the research is being done on the phone. You're looking at JPEGs and so on, but then you'll phone up a dealer or phone up an individual and the deal will be done offline but in terms of the the the, the percentage of uh the transaction that in a sense is digitalized it's a very very high percentage but in terms of the closure of the deal it's offline and so it it makes um the evaluation of to use that that sort of technical term penetration in in, of digital into the art market very difficult to evaluate in pure raw sales it's a relatively low level influence um is colossal i think well i mean i I think one of the interesting pieces to that puzzle is so much of that tfaf report is based on some knowledge or uh, information that McAndrew is generating through uh, questionnaires with dealers and and others. And because so much of what you've just described uh, constitutes the private market or or 
as as you just said, a lot of the work done with collectors through the auction houses is done through phones. You know, the JPEGs are sent and a, uh, uh, you know, a guarantee is derived at all based on um, people uh, sending uh, packets back and forth across the internet, but that's not considered an online sale, nor should it. And we've seen an interesting turn in the last few uh, months where, you know, the auction houses are trying to add to that digital component of their sales. And we were told when we saw Stephen Murphy leave, we were told by his predecessor that perhaps one of the reasons he uh, left was that the cost of online sales at Christie's was much higher than anyone had expected. That instead of instead of taking... Well, it's... Um, <clears throat> it's this is a fascinating subject, and it's very difficult to get reliable and, in fact, any numbers on what the development costs, for example, of Christie's online sales um, was and is. Um, interestingly, if you look at um, Etsy, which is the latest much-talked-about uh, IPO uh, from the, from the dot-com sector, um, everyone's terribly excited about this, this, this public offering. But, again, Etsy from what I read, doesn't make a profit because it's the profits are just gobbled up by development costs. Um, yeah. And it's clearly, clearly a problem for the sector, and yet the investors still love it. They still want it, and they still think that there's long-term scalable growth that's worth worth backing. Well, that's certainly there's been so much pressure on both Sotheby's and Christie's to make this turn. And and I think as we, we discussed uh, a few weeks ago, one of the big problems with finding a new CEO for Sotheby's was that there was no logical or obvious place to turn. If, if you weren't going to take someone from the art or auction business, there was no homologous business that you could obviously say if someone was successful in, say, this luxury endeavor, they would make a great person to run or transform, come up with a new strategy yes. for, a, for a place like Sotheby's. And, yeah. and, it, yeah. and it's interesting that the, um, the announcement of Sotheby's new CEO was paired in a, in a sort of very artfully done one-two punch of the new chairman and CEO announced early Monday morning, and then the details of... It's going to be... Well, well that's, I, I suppose the thing to do with Sotheby's is to have a look at the, the challenges facing um, the new executives. Um, it strikes me there are four sectors in which they are, they've fallen far, far behind Christie's. Um, I think the first one, and probably the most important of all, is branding. Um, under Stephen Murphy, if you go to Christie's website, um, Christie's calls itself the art people. Much to the sh- much think. much to the chagrin of many of the employees of Christie's. <laughs> well, absolutely, yeah. But it it, um, it is a, quite an inspired piece of of, of branding um, because it allows them to expand in in any really different area they want, whereas Sotheby's is still perceived as an auction house, for better or worse. And that is, I think, a problem for Sotheby's. I think that's, um, that's an excellent point. Uh, I mean, the, the Christie's has won the branding 
uh, concept over the last few years, almost uh, uh, surprisingly. And it's worth uh, pointing out before we get to your other three uh, aspects that Christie's is owned by a luxury conglomerate, and it has been transforming itself into a vendor of luxury goods using art as the draw, much in the same way um, many of the fashion houses now have art in their boutiques. And so they've taken the same model, either consciously or unconsciously, and melded them, maybe not profitably, but having these record-breaking contemporary art sales that hit at the height of what the fashion world considers high culture, and also selling handbags and watches, makes them into a, uh, like like Sephora was uh, a decade and a half ago, a kind of groundbreaking new way to sell these kinds of uh, products. We just don't know if that's been a productive or profitable uh, one. And, and and I guess my only point is it's, it, it's very important to remember that Christie's and Sotheby's, while perceived as being locked in a, in a rivalry, are actually very different companies because of who owns them. The conglomerate has different needs from the independent, publicly uh, held auction house. Absolutely. And, and um, or just to pick up on that point you make about branding, I think, you know, my sense is uh, the branding is, is probably the most important issue. And uh, we in the West perhaps don't quite have the sense of how incredibly important it is in Asia as well. And this strength of branding that Christie's has developed over the last few years, I think, is, is, gives them a great edge. Great edge. There. Say, say a little more about that, because that that's fa- fascinating. And the first time I've heard it, you, what you're saying is that Christie's is ahead in the perception in Asia of its brand as a sort of luxury goods. Uh, well, I, I, you know, I, I don't know what your experience, but, but talking to people um, who are experienced in the in in the world of Asian art and so on, and who know Asia well, one of the things they, they always talk about is the importance of the brand to, to Asian individuals. And um, Yes, it's a form, it's almost like face, right? It's, uh, it's Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, I think in the West, we, we'd sl- we don't have quite the strength of devotion to the notion of brand that there is in, in, in Asia. Uh, it's particularly with, if you look at things like the, the market for, for wine, which I followed, and that, you, you know, Lafitte, Latour, Domaine de la Romani Conte, the label on the table, on the bottle of wine, is a tremendous status symbol there, and my sense is I know you know I'm not going to throw any numbers uh, in terms of Asian sales in comparison with Sotheby's, but the fact that the, that Christie's has created this strength of brand, uh, I'm sure, gives it a, an edge in Asia, and Sotheby's perhaps, well, I, I think Sotheby's really does need to to, to its brand and work out what it wants to do with it because at the moment there is this this perception that it's a slightly old-fashioned entity and that it's specialised in, in, in auctions. And that, I think, needs to be addressed for the company to go forward in a dynamic way. That, that's, I think that's one of the most interesting things I've heard uh, said about all, all of this, uh, you know, this, this battle that's been going on in the evolution. So so let's not take away from your other three points. Sure. The, I, you know, then we move on to... Um, a, a lot of noise has been made about the fact that, particularly by, by Dan Loeb, um, its major shareholder, that, that Sotheby's didn't have a coherent online strategy. Um, 
You know, there are two ways to look at this. The first way to look at it is that, in a way, it's it's a bit of a red herring. If you look at Christie's and the supposed success of Christie's as online strategy, its online-only sales represented 0.4% of its sales. Exactly. Yeah, and they were clearly expensive and are expensive to run. Um, what they gain, uh, Christie's, from this is... An, is the fact that they bring in new people and often someone who buys, I've mentioned this before, an expensive handbag might be living in the same house as someone who can afford an expensive impre- impressionist painting. So it's, it's, it's really a sort of tangential um, benefit you got from the, 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 the online sales at Christie's. Sotheby's have been quite clever, I think, with the eBay type because, because of course, they avoid... Um, the startup costs, the development costs of system. Do you know? There, do you, cost can, there, but. can I interrupt you on that? Uh, I don't want to take about your later point, but I, I was was looking at the eBay tie-up and and wondering. I wasn't looking at it in detail. What eBay does is brings them bodies. You know, it's a, it's a platform for more viewers. But I'm not necessarily sure it saves them the cost of running sales for those viewers. If if what we're told about Christie's is to believe be believed, it wasn't that it cost them however many millions to build a platform, which it may have. But if you bracket that cost away, we're being told that it was still very expensive for them to create online only sales, either gathering the material or promoting them. And and that Sotheby's, I don't see how Sotheby's doesn't have that cost, uh, even with the eBay tie-up, because eBay is bringing the bodies, but not material and not promoting that material. Well, who who is actually paid for the... Um the online platform that's the thing because it's 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 a dual branding of ebay and sotheby's i'm just or is it is it of these costs divided between the two companies i don't know that detail uh, i believe that uh, and i i'd have to verify this uh, there's actually three companies uh, ebay has a large audience um, that gets plugged in invaluable which runs the technology uh, connects that audience to Sotheby's, and Sotheby's makes the sale. My understanding is really um, uh, eBay and Invaluable are taking just a small part of the sale, uh, or almost a, a, a marketing or a connection fee, and that Sotheby's will will be paid, uh, you know, the bulk of the commission. But they still, and, and but my point is, they still have to generate a sale and market that sale. Um, and so far, we're being told for Christie's that's been quite expensive. No, absolutely. Um, but I'm just interested in in into how much the setting up the this this joint website costs whether it's expensive um but we obviously don't know no no the cost of that is is borne by invaluable who are the technology creators in in all this that being the case then um sotheby's have saved uh what would have been what looked like pretty expensive development costs that uh, christie's had to burden but then when you look at the final stats of course sotheby's will get no online sales at all from this it's because, of course, what's being provided is basically a, a, a website that enables people to bid. So uh, at, at the end of this process, uh, all they're doing is just in, what, what they hope they're doing is enhancing live sales. So in a funny way, it's, 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 it's not really a coherent online strategy at all. They're just 
clients for their live sales. Right, but that that may be genius, or it may be um, foolish. This is the the issue. Nobody knows. I mean, we're in we're still in this uncharted territory where we don't know whether the um, dichotomy between live sales and island sales is a meaningful one that produces yeah. value or a false one that clouds the yeah. issue. One of the great successes really not talked about, though you and I discussed this in, in February, is the broadcasting of live sales seems to have become very successful and there are more people participating passively in sales than ever before. We just don't, because they can watch and be on the phone or bid in any number of ways, we don't really know the uh, uh, effect. But it's this melding of the two worlds that makes it exciting and maybe makes a lot of this online strategy versus the the company's strategy a bit of a semantic uh, discussion rather than a business discussion. No, that, that, that's true. Uh, one, one small technical detail that would make a hell of a difference is at the moment, um, online bidding is so much slower than telephone bidding. And um, Yes, and I, I know several buyers who just don't trust that yeah. their bid will get through. And exactly. and so still, you know, bid on the phone because they just aren't confident they can you know hit the button and, and they'll get it. That's right. But that's, that situation may well, may well change. And um, uh, I, well, we'll see what happens in 10 years' time. But um, I, I, it, may be, it may be next season when someone sits yeah. in, the, in the room with their phone and pushes yeah. their thumb <laughs> to make a bid, uh, which may be happening right now for all we know. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. And, and, and just in, in general terms, although the, the numbers at the moment are very small in, in, in terms of the, uh, dig, pure digital sales, online sales of art, um, the trend is that with each, each year, there's a doubling of, of, of volumes and an increasing tolerance among buyers to, be, to, to pay larger sums online. So... You know, the market is absolutely dominated by, and you've written about this, by, you know, these 1,500 paintings that sell for over a a million euros. uh, And they take up a huge proportion of um, the perception of the market. But there is this massive iceberg underneath of high volume sales that that really are very well suited to to, to, um, the digital uh, digital platforms, and I, I really think this is going to be a, 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 an area that's going to grow and develop very, very quickly. Um, Sotheby's at the moment, you know, the, we've had a lot of publicity about this eBay type, but for me, it's 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 a little bit of a compromise, a face-saving compromise, and doesn't constitute a, a, a strategy in terms of uh, digital sales. Well, that's the great thing about a new CEO, uh, uh, especially one with no real ties. Uh, it gives him an excuse to throw out anything and everything uh, and chart a new course. I just can't imagine that's going to happen uh, immediately because there's no obvious new course and they're just commencing on this eBay tie-up. So they, they sort of have some uh, if nothing, publicity need to see it through for six months a year to see where it goes. He's obviously very brilliant, though, because he's being paid seven point two million dollars. <laughs> so he, he must he must be fantastic. Well, I thought I thought it was interesting that um, 
uh, uh, Disolay was quoted as saying, it shows that the board universally thinks he's the best person because we're paying him more than the previous CEO, which seemed like very odd logic to me. And then the extension of that is that, of course, you, you have the board asking for, for um, savings and cuts and so on, while paying the CEO, what, an extra million uh, from the previous one, which is which is quite remarkable. Well, but, but. at least the company is consistent. Remember, Sotheby's is the place where Tobias Meyer publicly announced yeah. that the b- most expensive art was obviously the best ar- art. So the most expensive CEO is obviously the it's best CEO. And then we can, I suppose we can quickly jump to the, the other two challenges facing these guys, which is... Um, they're probably more easy to address. Uh, I suppose the first one is is private sales, and we've discussed this a little bit, but there's this huge stretch of clear water that's developed between Sotheby's and Christie's. Um, Christie's took almost $800 million more million in private sales than Sotheby's. Um, now, that, the CEO and the chairman need to address this quite quickly. Um, that strikes me as something that, that, that can be addressed in much more simply, I suppose, with new personnel? I don't know what your sense of that is. Well, one presumes, since they were before the um, drop on Sotheby's side, they were fairly neck and neck, and Sotheby's lost both Stefan Connery, the head of uh, private sales, uh, and Tobias Meyer, the sort of um, overwhelming, dominating presence in their contemporary art department, that it wouldn't be a surprise that their private sales would suffer. Yet, Christie's lost Amy Capalazzo, uh, who was their head of private sales and an important figure in the contemporary art market, without losing uh, so much uh, of their private sales, which could, you know, if we're just you know, doing an, ex- an experiment with a control group and all, it's it's not the personnel, uh, but it would be a mystery uh, without being inside the company, maybe even being inside the company, is what caused uh, that uh, a dramatic drop in, in private sales. I, I think we've had, both had similar conversations with people that uh, saying that, that Christie's at the moment in private sales just have this edge. Uh, people talk all about Christie's and their better teamwork, uh, and this might be the case also in, the, in, in terms of private sales. Yes, they, they, I, they do seem to have, a, a, the whole contemporary department seems to work in a Goldman Sachs-like unison, not that they are um, necessarily shrinking violets or without egos, but that they put the, the, the sales and the good of the firm above their, their personal uh, uh, rivalries or ambitions. And, yeah. and it's important... Sotheby, uh, Christie's, sorry, has invested a lot of money in creating a whole new set of showrooms for private sales in their flagship uh, location in New York that I don't think Sotheby's uh, has uh, uh, countered with. And so that, uh, at least on the physical side, shows a commitment uh, to private sales. Absolutely. But in, in London, for example, as you know, we have these S2 showrooms. Uh, you know, I was thinking about this morning. I, I, again, that is an area that, that um, Sotheby's might look at because at the moment both houses are putting on quite rarefied, high-concept contemporary art exhibitions in their retail spaces. And I, I don't know how commercially efficient that is. Um, I'm just wondering whether further down the line, um, 
an, a, a different kind of retail model could be applied to those those spaces. At the moment, they're, they're trying to be um, like David Swern or Gagosian. They're, they're putting on these exhibitions. Um, it strikes me that there are opportunities for Sotheby's and Christie's with their changing branding to do something different with their galleries as well. That's that's um, an excellent point because it, it is one of the places that the private, the galleries have shown themselves to be vastly superior to the auction houses. Yeah. It is in creating these museum quality exhibitions. Yeah. And it's not just Gagosian, though Gagosian has certainly put more effort and uh, uh, more visibility into it. But but Aquavella's Werner, I mean, nu- numerous private galleries have done an extraordinary job of really creating uh, connections and making a case for work that nobody else was able to do or no one wanted to wait for a museum uh, to do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I, I'm just wondering, uh, you know, this is probably sacrilegious to say, but um, I'm just wondering whether Sotheby's and Christie's, in pure commercial terms, might not look to a different model and look at galleries like um, a Halcyon Gallery and Opera Gallery now, the, the contemporary art world laughs at these dealerships, but my goodness me, it's, it's quite an interesting business model. You, when you go in, the doors are open, people are very welcoming, they're there to sell art. That might be a model worth looking at rather than the more rarefied, uh, quite intimidating atmosphere that the moment uh, you find in the, in the Sotheby's and Christie's retail space. Let, let's, let's go back a little bit because in, in um, the 90s when Alfred Taubman bought Sotheby's. That was exactly his intention. You know, Taubman was uh, made his fortune as a um, mall uh, developer, and he had very clear and distinct ideas about what was necessary to bring in customers and how they should be treated. And he was brought in to buy Sotheby's as a bit of a white knight. But as soon as he showed up, he started uh, you know, lambasting the the management that they were too snooty, that they didn't yeah. uh, treat people uh, uh, in an open and inviting way, yeah. and, and certainly at the high end, this is the strength of the auction houses is not this kind of education. Uh, and and by the way, I should say it, it would be terrible if uh, the auction houses got good at creating those exhibitions because there there needs to be a balance between these private galleries and the auction houses. If we end up with just two sellers of art, that would be bad for everyone. Uh, and, and I think what the auction houses do a great job at is being so open to you know, to new money people and yeah. wealthy people. And, and the question is how far down the, the uh, from ultra high net worth, can they just get to high net worth uh, 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 people? But their great skill right now is you walk into an auction house, uh, you can get a lot more support and people will answer any question you have. Uh, they'll take you around. They'll treat you uh, very well, much better than a um, a dealer will. Mostly because the dealers just don't have the staff to handle everyone, so they're they're somewhat rationing their time based on who's the most likely to buy. Uh, and and this is again part of the cost problem for the auction houses. To keep this high level of sales seems to also require keeping a a vast army of uh, specialists around who, who can uh, handle who any person who walks in who may be another Indonesian uh, billionaire you just have never heard of. 
No, exactly. And this is one of the, the uh, most challenging things for the auction houses as well, is that this huge, the huge cost of concierge services. Um, you know, you've pointed out how the, in graphs, and uh, that the profit levels, well, we only have transparency of, with one auction house, of course, but if we look at the profit levels of, of Sotheby's, um, the sales are now up to the level of uh, 2000 and 2007, aren't they? But if you look at the profits, they are significantly down. Now, why is this? Um, one of the primary reasons is that wealthy sellers are much, much cannier and much more aggressive and better at bullying the auction houses so that they really take pretty much everything of um, the profit. Uh, the other is, of course, that it's it's because of the globalization of the, the art market, when you get a major work, it has to be flown all, all across the world. And then, of course, the other thing is that the, the potential clients um, have to be coddled by members of staff. And it, it's an enormous cost base there. Um, well, that gets us back to what you were discussing earlier about this being a luxury good uh, 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 company and, and sort of gets us to the the real story of the week, which is Domenico de Soleil emerging as the chairman of the board and not just one presumes a, a, a chairman of the board, but because of his uh, illustrious history in the luxury goods business as really the, the force uh, uh, finding a new direction uh, for the company. But the luxury goods business is a high-touch business. It's very expensive to run. And if you, if you look at Sotheby's um, earnings that were released earlier in the month, it's not marketing costs that rose, they actually went down. And, and presuming that flying those paintings to Hong Kong and Taiwan comes in as a marketing cost, and it may not, it may get hidden somewhere else. But those costs are not going up. It's salaries that are is going up. They, they had some other costs related to the board fight, but the salaries continue to rise. And and this was what came out in the board fight, is that some of the board previous board members were already complaining that uh, Ruprecht was, uh, uh, you know, expanding the company by just uh, hiring more people and that he didn't have good cost control on. So it, the great mystery, which I, I assume we will not see for, for three to six months, is how do they solve this conundrum of a high-touch business that is getting uh, killed by its salary uh, costs? Well, when we say salary costs, we're talking about the, the, the salaries of executives, aren't we? Because, no, no. Uh, I think I think the salaries are it's bodies. They 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 have. It's not just you know we we can make fun of the pay package for the new CEO sure. and and that's perfectly legit legitimate. Uh, it seems very odd that they would go through all of this and and then make this uh, uh, a move. But that's their their choice and they have to to live with it. But my reading of the numbers, there there are more employees. They and and sure. and it's not just executives. It's not like they're hiring heads of departments. They just they all those people when you go to an auction and you see all those people on the telephones most of those people have day jobs they're servicing clients out there among the wealthy uh, finding the right uh, work you're, you're absolutely right because they, they, it would be interesting to look at the, a, a breakdown of the, the sectors of employment and how they've grown but I would suspect that client services is the the great growth sector 
um, at Sotheby's and Christie's, apart from the, 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 the growth and the, the number of specialists, in particular in the contemporary department. Look at what Sotheby's did hiring away, I will butcher her name, but the, the Andrea Fidzulski, Fidzulski uh, who uh, runs the um, Los Angeles office for Sotheby's mm-hmm. now, really the West Coast, previously had for, for, for Christie's. Uh, uh, those are the kinds of people I think they need in in, in Singapore, in L.A., in, in probably in Sao Paulo. I mean, it's, those are the things that we don't hear about get written yeah, about Mawson. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. But then, you know, that's an important element. But then, of course, we also have to look at, and this is the sort of fourth major issue, is, is Sotheby's being absolutely slaughtered in terms of sales at, in the New York evening sales in the contemporary sector. Um, and how can that be addressed? I suppose one thing that crops up again and again is that uh, Tobias Mayer was a huge personality at Sotheby's, and with his departure, um, no one has really stepped up to, to, to fill his boots. But also, I think perhaps more importantly, as, as you alluded to earlier, um, Christie's has a more dynamic teamwork ethic, uh, seemingly. And in the past, you know, Tobias Mayer was a, such a huge personality, but I don't know whether he was he was the best team leader. Uh, and this perhaps has created problems uh, since his departure. Well, it's interesting. We also learned this week that Tobias Meyer is on better terms than, with Sotheby's than we realized because he delivered the uh, Samuel Goldwyn estate uh, to Sotheby's. A- and also on that um, that sort of same topic, I, in London, they just held that... Um, uh, single owner sale. I want to say bare necessities, but I know that's wrong. <laughs> Which was very successful. Well, that was remarkable. I, I you know, I, I was actually in, in in Maastricht, but I spoke to a few people. And um, in terms of the, the the quality levels, people saying, "Well, you know, it, it, it's 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 a it's a fun sale, and the right names are there, but the actual specific examples, when you look at them in detail." You know, they're, they're, they're B-plus examples, not A examples, not A-plus examples. And yet it was an absolute testimony to, to you know, the, the marketing power of an auction house and also um, the, the fashionability, the absolute international desirability of contemporary art for the, that sale of not A-plus material to make, I think it made over 30 million, just overestimate, didn't it? And the, the selling rates were remarkable. Um, about ninety, just under ninety percent in the evening sale, and it was really quite consistent. Um, so, so let's see what's taken back by. Let's do a little inside baseball on that. The auctioneer was, uh, uh, correct me on his name, Alex. Branchek. Branchek. I, I thought it was yeah. Branchek. I, again, with my bad pronunciation <laughs> of also Slavic uh, 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 names, um, but Alex Branchek. Uh, was the auctioneer? Does that mean that he was the one who brought in the collection? I th- well, I'm not sure. Uh, that uh, that may well be the case. I'm not sure. 
Um, but that that goes just I only bring that up because mm-hmm. here we are talking about personnel and business getting mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. a young member of the uh, contemporary art staff is leading mm-hmm. a surprisingly strong single mm-hmm. owner sale. Yes, it's not the New York evening sales, but, mm-hmm. you know, in many ways, Sotheby's would be smart not to go head to head with Christie's. In fact, last November, they somewhat tried to do that in the midst of the board fight and the, the resolving it, they spent a lot of money on guarantees. And, mm-hmm. and if you read the annual report, it says they lost something like $15 million uh, guaranteeing works yeah. uh, that, that year. So they, they tried to pay up to, to, you know, measure up and it didn't work. And here mm-hmm. they seem to have done, you know, maybe they, they, there was a guarantee on that. I, I hadn't heard that there, there was, mm-hmm. but if, even if there was, it's perfect. No, I don't think it was guaranteed. No, and, it wasn't guaranteed. And it performed so well. I mean, that's, that's running a good, uh, auction house is finding the right thing, marketing it well, bringing the right uh, buyers in, and one presumes profiting uh, from it. No, absolutely, and and of course, you know, auctions at level are in the sweet spot where they're taking money from. Well, uh, we don't know what the arrangements are with the seller, but um, they're at least getting quite a lot of buyers premium, aren't they? So um, generally, if you, if you can sell works for for under well. I'm going to say it's from 10,000 up to a million. That is the sector where auction houses make money. Uh, and that was a you know high-volume sale. It's all a lot of stuff. And uh, I presume it was quite a profitable sale for them. Uh, and that's, in a way, you know, so much attention is on is is put on the top end of the market. But if, if the auction houses, you know, want to remain sustainable as businesses, this is the sector where which is going to save them, really, isn't it? Because at the moment... Uh, at the very top end, wealthy sellers are just so good at really taking pretty pretty well all the money, aren't they? Well, it's also it's just a very hard uh, to to know what you're going to get. I mean, a lot of this when you when you talk to the people who put the sales together, they'll tell you they you know it's a lot of it's just luck, uh, finding the right people who are willing to to sell and and as we saw with um, their uh, impressionist and modern sale last November at Sotheby's, when you go out to the owner of the Modigliani head or the um, uh, Giacometti chariot, you may do well you may not do do well and so uh, the more aggressive they are in in trying to bring works to market doesn't necessarily make them more profitable and 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 that may be the opportunity here for for Sotheby's which is to bring in someone who can figure out a way to cut costs and uh focus on a, a portion of the market that gets them uh, uh, better profits, but you know th- the stock price at forty is still a very rich twenty two twenty four times uh, earnings. If you can increase the earnings by through these cuts and improve that, you might get ten twenty percent to the stock. But that doesn't get you back to where it was selling in December at the height of the board fight at sort of fifty five. Let alone to seventy five or eighty, and that's the mystery here of what Dan Loeb wants. What's the transformative strategy that takes Sotheby's from being a, a, a just under $3 billion company and makes it a, a four, five, six billion dollar company? That's, that, 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 that's right. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, individual auctions, success of individual auctions aren't really going to make 
the difference. Um, it needs to be a, some kind of strategic step change. Um, and it's a curious business, isn't it? Because at the very top end, you have these, these works making enormous amounts of money, but very little profits for the auction houses. So on a very simple level, the, the area uh, where there can be growth is the middle and lower market, which happens to be the areas where you can you get you, you make the most profit as an auction house. Now, perhaps the, 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 the magic bullets or the magic formulas could be for Sotheby's to do with uh, a rebranding, a reconfiguration, a reimagining of, the, of the, the company as a corporate entity. And the second thing is, of course, driving these, these uh, lower value sales, profitable lower value sales. Um, at the moment, um, Sotheby's haven't got an internet strategy for that. But if, if a major auction house can come up with some kind of digital strategy to drive forward that the middle to lower uh, value sales, then that might actually be turn it into a stock that you might want to buy, perhaps. You know, uh, I was going to say at some point in this that the pay package suggested no one wanted this job as CEO of Sotheby's, and and basically they had to, uh, uh, you know, make it uh, foolproof for this rather inexperienced outside executive to come in and take a chance on being uh, the CEO of Sotheby's. But after hearing you say that, I, it sounds like an exciting opportunity and a, a great job to take a, a crack at and make your bones as a, a CEO. No, no, absolutely, and, and and the man to watch, I think, is um, Dasoli because he obviously had a, a transformative role. At Gucci. It should be said that that was quite a time ago. That was ten years ago, um, but he he has got this reputation as being an extremely astute eminence grise strategist and um, he may well be cooking up some very, very interesting ideas for some I do have to say, uh, I, we probably should have seen it coming all along, but I felt like nobody saw that coming. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he, he, he might be the man to do it, and it, you know, he does come out of the luxury sector, and of course uh, Christie's success has, has, has been built around its transformation of its brand uh, and it's, it's, it's learning and adaptation of strategies from the luxury sector, I would say. Well, with that, I'm going to let you get back to your rugby today. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you so much, and we'll talk Thanks again so soon. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Our Intelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 